it's a very like middle class American thing to assume your life will be like I'm gonna work for 40 years and then I'll then I'll retire and then I'll enjoy my life. And I do not want to do that. I want to very deliberately not do that. So I want to have a practice that allows me to not do that. You know, and I, I want to have like other things and non-work things in my life that I enjoy. And I want you know for the people that come and work at the firm full time. I want all of that stuff for them as well. This is Personal Jurisdiction, a podcast where we get personal with lawyers about their careers. Personal Jurisdiction is hosted by the wonderful Allison Friedman and by me, Hallie Ritsu. On today's episode, we welcome Tom Case. Tom is a graduate of Northwestern University Pritzker School of Law. After law school, Tom worked at a number of firms in Chicago and also served as a law clerk on the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals and in the District Court for the Northern District of Illinois. Tom is the owner of the law office of Thomas R. Case in Chicago. And today we chat with Tom about his path to solo practice. Enjoy the show. We are back here on Personal Jurisdiction, and today we're looking forward to our discussion with Tom Kays. Tom has worked at a number of different law firms, big and small, but we're most excited to talk to him about starting his own solo practice earlier this year. So Tom, welcome. Hi guys, thank you. Hi Tom, we're so happy you're here. Thank you, thank you, happy to be here. So we just wanted to jump right in and sort of talk about why it is you decided to go to law school. Um, I know that based on, you know, your college background, I think you told us that, you know, you had a major that didn't necessarily lend itself to going to law school. Um, so if you can just kind of tell us how it was that you originally um, made the journey to go to law school. Yeah, so I, uh, I am an Asian studies, Japanese literature major in college. And all you can do with that is teach college people and create this never ending cycle Japanese literature majors. Um, and I didn't want to do that. And I, you know, people always tell you, oh, go to law school and, you know, you have, if you go to a liberal arts college, you have 400% of your classes taking the LSAT every weekend. And, but I, you know, I was reluctant. And um, eventually there was a on, on-site job fair and I met uh, Chris Brancard who came down looking for like a pair of, you know, a fresh out of college paralegal and he had this small law firm up on uh, up in, in Pescadero, California. And I just, yeah, I just liked him. I thought, yeah, I don't know if I want to go to law school yet, but staying in California and having a job makes sense. So, you know, he came down in like this ratty old suit and like hiking boots. I was like, I can like this guy. <laughs> what kind of work did you do at that firm right out of college? Uh, yeah, so it was uh, it was husband and wife and one other lawyer, and they did only plaintiff side housing discrimination cases. So pretty much every case had a federal fair housing act claim, and you know my initial job duties were you know everything from like making coffee in the morning to like taking the mail out, and gradually I got more interested and involved in kind of the casework, and you know spent more and more time basically investigating the cases, you know, helping with formal discovery, but also spending a lot of time, you know, flying places, knocking on doors, calling people, calling people's parents to get them to call me, you know, that kind of, and, and just, you know, 
investigating. And it sounds like you you liked the work, like you were enjoying it. You got more responsibility over time, and you ultimately sort of catapulted yourself from that to law school. Yeah, no, I think after about a year or so, I think I felt like okay, you know, I like this. I like these folks. You know, so there's at least one thing I can do with a law degree that I'm not, I don't think I'm going to hate. And, um, you know, it made me feel comfortable applying to law school, which I did. And then I think I deferred because I was actually having a really good time. I like living in Santa Cruz. Um, we had a, a really interesting case against uh, Donald Sterling, the real estate mogul in L.A. who used, used to own the Clippers. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to hang out until that case was over. So Northwestern let me defer a year. Um, but yeah, I think I spent spent three years there. It was a good time. And then you came back to the lovely Windy City to go to Northwestern. And we promise not all of our guests are Northwestern grads, but there are so many good ones. Yeah, that we good, can't... just the good guests. <laughs> just the good guests. Yes. Yeah, we can't help but have some of our fellow alums on. So, Tom, you were a year ahead of us at Northwestern. Tell us what your law school experience was like. Yeah, well, I think one of the things, um, yeah, I, I had a good time. And I think part of that is, you know, one of the reasons I think people should go to Northwestern, although I don't know that this is as true now as it was when we were there is so much of the class had a little bit of work and life experience behind them. And I had, you know, three years working at a law firm. That's not very interesting for people in law school. But there was, I mean, there was like a guy who, like in your class who like evacuated from an embassy and a helicopter and like a hail of gunfire. <laughs> um, you know, like there was, you know, the Nicole, who is now my wife, was in your year. You know, she had like a nine-year career at Target and like, managed $2 billion worth of stores worth of HR. I mean, like there are people who've done some serious stuff. And so it was, you know, it was kind of a, a more grounded crowd, which was, you know, made it, made it a lot of fun. And then I think, um, you know, the fact that the firm I worked for was almost a hundred percent federal litigation, um, you know, gave me such a huge advantage going in. Cause I, you know, I, I knew what a complaint was. I knew what discovery was. Um, you know, I didn't have to kind of learn the language and then learn the content. Like I knew the language. And as far as like one L civil procedure went, I already kind of knew the content too, not in the level of detail, but like I had the framework on which to hang what they were trying to tell us. And, you know, I think the result of that was I was really well prepared going in and, you know, people then thought I was much smarter than I was just because I had like, I had like three years of law school before going to law school and everybody else is like coming in blind. And, you know, it's this, it, you gotta be, and like, there were still plenty of people who did much better in school than I did, which like, I don't know how you come in blind and, and you know, stick at it without, you know, crying a lot, but. Yeah, um, I was gonna say, Holly and I have talked a lot about the fact that we both came in blind, so we did not have this advantage. Oh. Um, and we've talked a lot about how the, how even after law school, we were really still figuring out like what lawyers really do while we were starting our first jobs. I remember like figuring out, you know, really, truly the difference between a motion to dismiss and motion for summary judgment, like what that actually looks like. 
not until I got to a firm and was like, oh, so one is before discovery and one is when yeah. you have all of the things to actually present, you know, like, of course you can say the words and recite them on an exam, but I know we've had a lot of conversations about how we didn't totally know what lawyers did even all the way through law school. And even, I mean, even yesterday, guys, I was thinking about how I'm going to explain summary judgment and rule 56 to my legal writing course, many of whom either are in Civ Pro right now or haven't taken it yet, and trying to think about, I even went back to my notes from Civ Pro 1 to see wow, if Professor Reddish, you. I know, I still have them, <laughs> if Professor Reddish had, you know, some okay. fun way to describe it that I could make maybe a little bit more accessible to my students than the language of Rule 56, which is almost still kind of difficult to understand for me. So, I, I mean, that's a huge advantage, Tom, and a really practical advantage. Yeah, no, I mean, if you if you'd have just three years of your life to spare, go and work for a law firm before <laughs> law school. But no, I think, yeah, I, you know, I, I love Marty Reddish, and, and he's one of the professors I still keep in touch with. But I think a lot of, you know, a lot of what made his class fun for me is that he was, you know, kind of talking ahead of any reasonable student's ability to, to handle the subject matter, because it just assumed so much, not just background knowledge of the specific subject, but with him especially how, you know, how the subjects all, you know, interrelated and became a coherent system for, you know, at a progressive cost point resolving questions. And like, you don't, you know, like you come in your first day and you'd like I'll read a case, what's a case? And he's like, and then, you know, in 1905, <laughs> you know, John Clark or whatever the heck his name was. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it's just like, the idea of doing law school without the preparation I had is, is horrifying. So kudos to you guys. So in, in addition to your dominance of civil procedure, what else were, what were the other things that were valuable or helpful about your law school experience? What do you still think about today when you think back about those few years of fun? Oh, man. Um, you know, I, you know, number one, I think I, I met my wife. That was nice. Woo. And number, you know, distant number two, um, I, it was, it was fun to, you know, learn more, learn some stuff that I don't think that in the practice of law, you don't have, you don't really have enough time to become an expert in all the things you wish you knew. And so it was kind of fun to take some classes and learn some stuff and, you know, really kind of dig deep. Like, you know, there are very few, I think, you know, I'll call small to medium size areas or questions in law that. If you read a you know one inch stack of cases, you can't pretty much know just about everything you need to know about them. But you know who's got the time when you're like doing all the other stuff you need to do that is not learning your your field better? Which is one of the re like one of the reasons I think we're all so specialized for the most part now. Is it's just like the idea of being a generalist when you know you've got reams and reams and reams of new stuff coming out every day. It's, you know, forget about it. Yeah, that's an interesting point, and I want to talk more about sort of the generalist thing versus the specialist thing and how that's changed over time. But before we get to that, can you just tell us, so obviously um, 
you know, you go through law school, you're thinking about getting your first job. How did you go about deciding what it was that you were going to do for your first job? Man, so when I when I came to law school, I definitely did not want to work at a, a big defense firm. And mm-hmm. I was like, I want to go back and do fair housing work, or I want to be a plaintiff's lawyer, or I want to have my own firm. Like, you know, very, you know, what you learn or these are super, when you come to law school, you learn that those are all subversive thoughts because, you know, <laughs> the, the message, the message at these places is like big law or shame. And, you know, everything I wanted was, was the shame road. And especially <laughs> every, you know, especially, and no, it, it's really, it's really powerful because, you know, I think if you ask my mom, like she would tell you that the one defining characteristic of my life is not doing what other people want me to do. And, you know, what did I do my second summer? I went to work at a big defense firm. And so I think it's really, <laughs> it's just really powerful uh, in, in, in kind of pushing you in that direction with kind of every, every kind of cue, you know, our feeble minds have a receptor for, like money, prestige, approval of peers, approval of the institution, you know, hammering down all the other stuff, like, oh, plaintiff's personal injury lawyers, ugh, you know, um, you know, criminal defense lawyers, they're just like beneath us, which is total nonsense. So even you can come in like super lefty communist wanting to do different things like <laughs> I do. And you, like, especially if you, if you happen to get halfway decent grades, they're just like money and then you go and you do it. Um, and, and you know, that, that summer experience is usually so pleasant you know, people are like, yeah, I'll go back. Um, I, don't know, I may yeah. have lost the question. But... No, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, it's interesting that even for someone who one came in with experience of working at a law firm, so you kind of knew what you wanted to go back to, which was not, it sounds like big law. And two, uh, I didn't know you were such a contrarian, but <laughs> someone who doesn't do what other people are doing and still you sort of found yourself in this big law world doing on-campus interviewing OCI. I know Hallie and I obviously both did that too when we both ended up at big firms. I can't say I'm as much of a contrarian, so I probably even had a harder time uh, resisting the, the flow there to put you onto that path. But yeah, I think it is sort of a strong, um, you know, strong thing that happens for for everyone, the pull of that. And as you said, prestige, money, all those things. There's just, and there's an absence of information about alternatives, which is why I think what you guys are doing is so important. I mean, like one of the, one of the tech marks of like the brain, the big wash, the big law brainwashing is like, it's utter certainty. Like you you have no idea what your life's going to be like. Like you could do some research and talk to some people and then you'd know what big law practice is like, but you, you do know so many things. Like you go to that mouth page and it's like, this is what you're going to get paid. Here's what you can get paid the next year. Here's the range of bonuses. You know, here's the health insurance. Here's, you know, there's so many things where it's just like, you know, tick, 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 you know, and then everything else is just a total vacuum of information. So you're like, well, I could, you know, open this empty box and have no idea what I'm going to do or just do what everybody else does. I love that characterization, Tom, and I promise we did not pay Tom for his compliment <laughs> of this podcast. That was completely natural. Um, but thinking about that choice as a certain choice, I have not thought about it that way, but I can certainly tell you in my psychology that was attractive to me without even being totally conscious of it. 
and is yes. has yeah. been a reason, you know, a reason why it is harder to make the con- contrarian choices, even though here we are, we've done it all these years later. So tell us about, you You did choose Big Law for your summer, your 2L summer. Um, after law school, what did you do? Yeah, so I have done a lot of jobs. Um, so at, right after law school, so I, actually you, you gotta go into law school. And again, one, one reason I think people think I did better in law school than I did is I wound up clerking. And in, in reality, um, I got both, I got two clerkships and one of them is both, they're both Northwestern alum. Uh, so, you know, nepotism forever. And <laughs> the first one is, is uh, Tallman and he just like comes to campus and there's like somebody at Northwestern whose kind of job it is to like line up a few people for him to talk to who we might like. And I definitely got on that list because of like more personality than like, you know, fancy pants lawyer mind. And, you know, we hit it off. And so he asked me to interview, you know, it, it worked out. So that was kind of the first job I got, although not the first job I did. And then the, the second clerkship, I, I took that judge's class and it was in civil rights litigation, which is an area of extreme interest and now something I still do. So I did pretty good. And, you know, I just, he could tell I was interested in, you know, abusing to have Brown. And uh, that's where I got that. So, um, but anyway, after I graduated, I didn't take the bar right away because I needed money. And so I went and worked at a, a plaintiff's class action firm for a while called, uh, I think then it might've been Edelson McGuire now, it's just Edelson. But, you know, they are a well-known kind of big shot consumer and privacy class action boutique. Had some fun there, kind of, you know, great firm, does great work, nice people not my super cup of tea. So, you know, I did my few weeks there and was happy with it. That's a year. Go ahead. I want to, yeah, I was just going to jump in and circle back for a second, just in terms of how you got the clerkships. Um, I think it's incredibly helpful just to highlight that one, we know that you are sneaky smart. And also, as you said, like you had these connections through the school that really helped put you on the map in terms of getting a clerkship. So we've been talking to a few different guests about like, how did you actually do it? And it's very rare. I think, you know, that people just submitted their application into the portal and someone just picked it out and decided that they were going to, you know, like never that that just doesn't happen. And I think the way it's presented to law students often, or at least, you know, I my perception at the time was that, yeah, you just go through this application process, you apply, you know, online and then somehow you will get a clerkship through that, which so far we have not come across a single person that, you know, that's the way that they got their clerkship. So I think it's just helpful to have that background unfortunately kind of insidery process um you know and this is coming from somebody who took full advantage of that uh but I, you know i will say like you know I, I know a few people who just kind of did the oscar application and, and got lucky and i just mm-hmm. think it you know it just really depends on um you know how stunning you look on paper and and also a function of how kind of geographically broad you're willing to be i think you know if you're Court of Appeals or bust, that's tough. Mm-hmm. If you're willing to travel and you know, if you're willing to work for any district or magistrate judge in the country, including Alaska and Puerto Rico, then you know I think somebody who you know did okay at Northwestern, and I, I truly mean that, not great, not even good, just okay. You know, I think those people 
there are judges out there for you. We think it's really instructive for our listeners, especially for law students, to hear true stories from the clerkship and job hunt. Because whether whatever value we assign to these processes, it's important that people know how it works. And it's also important at every step of the way, no matter whether you're looking for a clerkship or looking for a job or a position on a junior board or something like that, how instrumental relationships are and how you are forming those with your law school classmates, with your professors, with all of the people that you meet along the way. Okay, so you told us you worked at Edelson for a few months, which in part was driven by, you know, the f- a financial decision, um, which I think is a theme that, that we'll come back to. Then you you clerked on the Ninth Circuit, and then I think you also had another short period of time where you worked at Lovie and Lovie, is that right? Yeah, so um, I had, you know, so clerk- clerkships usually are between like September, September, and then some judges have a January to January slot. And the problem is if you, if you do, and this is like talk about, you know, problems you want to have, I guess, but if you do two and the ju- one judge is a September, December, and the other slot is a January, January, you got this like four month kind of no man's land. And it just so happened that a law school friend of mine who's a year ahead of me, Sarah Grady, um, she was kind of trying to generate a, a bigger prisoner's rights docket at Lobby and Lobby, which is a great civil rights firm here in town. And, but she was also having her kids. She was having her, I think, I think her first kid. But anyway, she was going on maternity leave and her maternity leave was like exactly the same as my gap between clerkships. And so we worked it out so that I would get Lobby as like a contract attorney. And, you know, I can't, I can't really cover for her because she knew a heck of a lot more about this stuff than I did, but you know, it was a like warm body who kind of knew 1983 law and I could at least kind of keep things moving. Um, so I spent, you know, four great months there. Uh, it's a really cool place. They have just, you know, like when you're a plaintiff's lawyer, you're always jealous of other people's cases. Like, you know, you see, you know, you see like um, Ben Crump like on TV and he's got this completely clear high definition video of the bad thing happening and like a, a signed confession by the cop who shot the person. <laughs> and like, why can't any of my cases, like Lodi's the firm that has like a lot of those cases. And so it was nice to, to work on some of them. And you know, they, they've got some really tough, you know, all their cases are tough I'm being completely facetious, but, um, but they had really good cases. So it was fun to work on some of those and meet those guys. I had a few, um, there were a few other people there in addition to Sarah that I knew who I consider and consider now um, kind of mentors in the area. Uh, so it was fun. And I think, you know, it was it was important to me because one, I thought like maybe I'll go back there. It's going to be a good place for me to land. Um, but, you know, and it's always good to kind of try to get by because I think in that case, like I really like the people that would like the work. But man, oh man, A, they were harder than anybody, you know, in big law or, or anywhere else I've seen. And there's there's like, chaos is too strong a word, but you know, it's like, there's definitely a, a, a I'll call it a chaotic minus fraction like vibe. And that's mm-hmm. just like how they dig it. And 
that's I'm just like way too you know chill for that. It just makes made me a little crazy. Um, teaches you that they're like for a great fit in terms of person and job. You know, it, it's got to be kind of more than just the work and just like people because everybody had to be there. I like. Um, you know, it's kind of like the vibe or the culture is especially if it's in this stuff because it's so yeah. so demanding no matter what. Yeah, I like that you said kind of try it before you buy it. I mean, I think that, you know, you so far as we're kind of walking through the various jobs that you've done, you've tried out a bunch of different things. So it's kind of like, you know, honing not only the subject matter area, perhaps that you want to practice in, um, but also, as you said, like the vibe of the place, you know, it, not every shop, even though they were doing really cool cases that you're interested in, is going to be a good fit for the personality and the person that's there. So I think that's also helpful because it's something we, I don't think we gen, we generally think enough about. It's like, okay, you know, are the types of cases I want to do there, you know, are, are the, is it prestigious, those types of things, but not necessarily like, is the culture of the place going to be a fit for me? Um, yeah. And it, it's think, really hard to know that unless you're on the inside. So was, like you said, try it, try it out. Yeah. No, I think it's, and, and there's just so many ways that that comes out. I mean, you know, is it a, is it a very type A, lots of process, lots of templates, lots of procedures kind of place, which is my style, you know, or is it kind of, you know, free and, and catch as catch can and like people are always creative and trying new things. And, you know, to somebody who likes that, that's great. To somebody like me, it's, it's horrifying. Um, or, or even, you know, especially in litigation, it's like, you know, you may know some litigator and think they're the nicest person in the world, and they like write some meet and confer letter that, you know, you're like, ugh, I don't, <laughs> you know, like it's so it's so like mean or or confrontational. You're just like, oh, not, not really my style. But if that's the style of the firm, like, you know, that's your life, yeah. and and you're gonna have to do things that you don't like. So, I mean, I feel like all those things you just got to know as much as you can. Tom has been my solo practice guru for long before I think I even thought I would do something like this. I remember, Tom, when I saw, I think, your LinkedIn announcement about starting your own firm, I reached out to you and asked if you would tell me all your secrets. Um, and you have been so helpful to me in setting up my firm. So I'm really excited to talk to you about what you're doing now. So can you tell us a little bit about your firm and how you got started? I think I, I'd always thought about wanting my own firm and I think it was just never never kind of good timing. It's, you know, starting a law firm is not particularly expensive. I think especially, especially a non-litigation practice or a defense practice, um, but even starting, you know, like a plaintiff's contingency practice, like representing plaintiffs on like contingency, um, it's just not, you know, that in terms of, you know, it, when you compare it to other businesses you could start, it's not much. And I think most people would be very surprised how cheaply you can do it. So even though it's, it's a cheap thing, um, you know, as I got older and older, the amount of money I needed to just, you know, pay the law school debt and pay the nanny and all this stuff got higher and higher. And it just kind of stayed just out of reach in terms of being uh, feasible. And then after after Sidley, I went and worked for another firm that was very successful very early, and we had a, a pretty big payday. 
uh, year, and I got a, a decent chunk of that. And I finally had enough money where I felt comfortable, you know, basically not getting paid for a few months and, and dumping a lot of money into the business. Mm-hmm. And I did it. And, you know, I think, I mean, what I wanted to do when I set out was kind of hit a, hit, pick, pick a few, I guess I'll, I'll put it this way. I wanted to pick a few niches because I think that on the plaintiff side, especially you, you have the option of being a complete specialist, right? You can do, you know, there's this really famous plaintiff's lawyer in Atlanta who's, you know, really great guy who, you know, once upon a time, he was the guy for rear impact auto collisions resulting in fires. And <laughs> what? he's like, if literally, if you got hit, if there was a car fire from a collision and you got hit in the back or maybe in the rear corners, I'm your guy. If you got hit on the side, I'm not your guy. Like he was super narrow. Wow. But if you're that narrow, you can be absolutely better at everyone else at that thing. You know, I always kind of took that lesson to heart. And there, you know, there's like a lot of kinds of cases I like a lot better than others. Like I like uh, housing discrimination cases that I call housing harassment cases, which are basically, you know, landlords and, and maintenance people and property managers who sexually harass uh, female tenants. Like I like doing those cases. I think I know how to put them together. Um, and there's not a whole lot of competition in the plaintiff's bar world for those cases. So that's, you know, one, one example of a niche. I think on the civil rights side, I really like uh, police excessive force cases, which, you know, is, is a bit broader. And there's certainly a lot of other people who do that, but, you know, I think they're, you know, something that we can specialize in and in the prisoner's rights side, you know, I call them failure to protect cases where the, the basic fact pattern is, you know, a prisoner goes to a guard or somebody and says, Hey, you know, guard ABC or other inmate XYZ has threatened me, please protect me. And they don't get protected and they get beaten up or, or raped or, or worse. You know, that's a kind of classic model of a case. And so when I started the firm, I thought, let's find a few of these niches and let's do a bunch of other stuff to make money right now so I don't like go bankrupt. And so right now I have a, you know, don't go bankrupt docket of a handful of consumer class actions, a don't go bankrupt docket of uh, wage theft cases against gig economy companies like DoorDash. Um, and, you know, there's a few other, you know, again, good cases, good clients, good people, but not, not the stuff I want to do forever that are kind of like, you know, designed to keep me while I build the docket and reputation that, that we want to earn. Um, I, I think that's super helpful because I was wondering, I mean, obviously everyone has probably, you know, especially since you've had so many jobs, you've had a chance to sort of figure out exactly if you could do like any type of law, you know exactly what you want to do. But at the same time, I like that you called it don't go bankrupt cases. Like starting a law firm, you don't always immediately have, you know, the reputation of like, this is the guy to go to if you have a, you know, rear end car crash that ends in a fire, right? Like no, people might not know oh, that yeah. yet. 
Um, so part of it is, is being a little bit flexible. It sounds like in terms of the, you know, don't go bankrupt versus here's what I ideally want to do. And then hopefully over time, it sounds like you'll kind of maybe yeah. shift more, more to the stuff you want to do full time if possible. A absolutely. And I think, and I think it's, it's, it's more of a concern with a contingency practice than a paid practice. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, in a, in a, on the contingency side, you know, you, you lose a case, you don't make any money, you know, and the cases, you know, the cases you want, which are the more sizable ones, you know, the more you're asking for, the longer it's going to take. And especially in um, civil rights cases, the people paying the bills are usually, you know, municipal lawyers who don't care and it's not their money. So they're not, they're not usually economically rational actors. Not to say, not to say they're irrational or bad people or anything. It's just, they don't act like kind of, they would if it was coming out of their pocket. Like, you know, you can you can settle a car wreck case before you file the case because people kind of know what's going to happen and people are being economically rational. If you represent a prisoner, even the, the most injured prisoner with the most righteous liability facts, you are not going to settle that case for real value, you know, until you get to near trial. It's mm -hmm. just the way this is the way they work. So I knew that we were we were attempting to do something that was going to be on the harder side of this. And I think that's what made the, the don't go bankrupt cases attractive. I think, if, you know, if, if you're doing a transactional practice, you're doing real estate stuff, just just go do what you want to do. And hopefully you've got a little bit of the bank type or something. You know, we've got our two best cases are probably three to five years or even longer before we're going to get paid. Yeah, yeah. So it sounds like you were thinking about um, the types of cases, obviously, and, you know, crafting a, a niche for yourself. What else were you thinking about, you know, as you were like, OK, I'm putting together a law firm, which, you know, as you said, maybe isn't as expensive, but there are other, you know, structures that have to be in place. And like, where did you even start? Obviously, you know, Hallie <laughs> has used you as a resource. Did you have other, you know, people you were talking to? How did you even go about, you know, getting started and knowing what pieces even had to be in place. Yeah, well, I think a couple, couple I'm gonna do the, the three-part answer and then only give two-part thing. Okay. Three, three <laughs> My answer. favorite kind. There you go. Uh, part one, you know, one of the fortunate things about having worked so many different places is, you know, you see the business model of different firms. And so there were certainly things I, I knew that I wanted to emulate and things that I knew I wanted to avoid. Because, you know, and, and backing up, all you really need is you need to know how to get cases and you need to have some confidence that those cases, whether whether they're cases or whether it's, you know, real estate closings or, or doing, you know, trust and estates work, you need to have some confidence that you can get, get the work and that it'll pay enough. And if you can kind of rough out those numbers, this is a pretty forgiving business we're in. Like, you know, we have a, we have a pretty high kind of guild margin because you need the license to do this. So, you know, I think most people think starting a law firm is, you know, much more risky than it actually is. But, you know, getting getting back to the first part of the answer, you know, just you need you need kind of a business model. And I, I'd seen a lot of those. Like I knew, you know, people who do civil rights cases tend to do kind of mix it up this way or this is kind of what they box. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, that, I had that kind of information. I think part two um, there is a wealth of knowledge on the internet and other people doing kind of what you guys are doing, you know, interviewing people about their offer. You know, there's a podcast called the Maximum Lawyer Podcast. 
Um, those two guys have been at it for five or six years, I don't know, long time. And, you know, some of the, I, I have listened to a lot of that stuff and some of the best episodes are just like, you do mass torts, tell me how that works. Or, you know, you have a divorce practice in Atlanta, how do you do it? You get mm -hmm. so much great information, you know, especially on specifics like this, this accountant, like I found my accountant and my insurance broker from podcasts. Um, yes, and I use both of I them. love that. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah. I love people. <laughs> podcasts are sources of great information. No, and, and on, on software and on app, you know, advice about advertising and marketing and websites and all this stuff. So there's just, it's never been an easier time to do this. Like, you, you can start a law firm in about 40 minutes with like a credit card and a laptop. Like, it, it really. <laughs> you guys, you're selling yourself short here because I know it takes a lot more than that. But I hear you. I hear you. It's it's good that yeah. you're saying the barrier to entry is is not that high. People can do yeah. this. Like, really? Yeah. yeah, I think you know. Let's see. That's the so part two internet. Part one experience. Part three is probably. Um, and this, I think, is a little trickier. Um, I had a sense of what the kind of plan B's and C's were. And one of the things that I learned a lot about at my my last job was advertising. And another thing I learned a lot about was litigation finance. And, you know, th this is, again, is, this is one of the nice things about everyone having to have a law license. You know, all the hedge fund and, and venture capital guys would love to get into Lawland, where you know we have four hundred and a thousand and two thousand percent margins on some kinds of work, but they can't because they ain't got law licenses. So what they do instead is they start, you know, litigation finance hedge funds that you know will loan you money to literally loan you money to start a law firm, or you know, and let you pay yourself out of that money. I mean, the, the terms are kind of weird sometimes, or you know, they'll. If you have a client who, you know, has settled their case and wants money faster than an insurance company will pay, which I don't recommend doing this, but you can get advances on settlements or advances on any kind. I mean, like the, the possibilities are limitless. So I kind of knew, depending on the kind of cases I wanted to do, there's, there's ways to get money. Um, and then, you know, plan C is always like fold up and, and do something else. And I think, you know, I don't want to get to plan C, but I think I, I think I'd have a soft landing if I completely screwed this up, which gives you some peace of mind. Definitely. That's something I've thought a lot about too, Tom, even though I'm earlier, much earlier in the process than you are, is that this could maybe not work out, but I there are many other things that I could do and probably be happy doing if it came to that. It isn't the end of the world or the end of my career if I have to transition or pivot to something else. For sure. Yeah, I think, you know, a lot, a lot of you will travel. Um. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> so, Tom, I one of the things, again, I'm early on in the process, as you know, but one of the things I've loved about getting started on my own is thinking about how I want things to work and even picking out the systems and designing the processes for the way that I think, you know, things are going to work most efficiently for me. So what is it about having your own firm that you like? 
Oh, I, I very much like the same thing. Um, so if, if there were two things, one would kind of be that. Like I like, I, I geek out pretty hard about taking apart, you know, the processes I do and breaking them down into steps that I can then delegate to somebody in Albania, which I do. Her name is Mavara and she's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, but so I really like that kind of, I guess you'd call business operations stuff. And I think that that has enabled me so far to have a much more enormous docket of cases, certain kinds of cases than you'd be normally be able to do as a solo practice. The process stuff, and especially if you have the technological automation, like I like that for certain kinds of wage theft cases, you know, somebody sees an ad on the internet, they click on a form, you know, when they click on the form, their info gets into my case management system. They get sent a bunch of information. My contract paralegal gets notified because she's on the system to go do this intake with them. There's a script for the intake. She knows exactly what to do. She gets the information I need. It goes in the system. It pings me to look at it. it takes me 35 seconds to decide whether to take the case or not because I've got the 10 pieces of information I want right in row. row. You know, we say yes the onboarding of the person is automated and you know we go from like total lead to filed case and we do it in, you know we could do it in depending on the client in four days and it's like literally 80 seconds of my time <laughs> and i feel like that's you know that's the way to do it you know that's awesome um so yeah. i geek i geek out hard over that stuff and i what i want to do <laughs> what i what i really want to do is get to the point where Nothing that I don't have to do or a lawyer does not have to do is being done by a lawyer. That's awesome. Do you think that, so, I mean, obviously you're really interested, as you said, that's one of your favorite things in all of the like nerding out on the business side of things. You started obviously even before law school at essentially like a one or two person shop. And then you said, you know, that you have kind of wanted to be your own boss forever. And you thought about, you know, having your own shop. Do you think part of that had to do with the fact that you started out with this experience early on where you kind of saw that you could do this one, you had a role model for it. And two, um, you knew that there was sort of this business aspect to it that, you know, you nerd out on and you like. Yeah, I think it definitely has something to do with the experience. Like I remember, you know, when I started at Brancart and Brancart, which was the, the firm I was an investigator at after college, you know, I was so dumb and naive that I was like, I was offended that, I mean, I, you know, I, I wasn't so dumb that I would like have said this, but I felt it, I felt bad about every time the firm had to make a decision based on the fact that it actually needed to make money. Like mm -hmm. we, we'd have these completely legitimate fair housing issues come up, but you know, you wouldn't be able to help everybody because it's like, you know, how, how badly do you feel injured by what happened? Like, oh, I'm not mad about it at all. And like, okay, your damages are essentially zero. So we cannot, you know, and I'd be like, no, we should sue these bastards. And, you know, <laughs> um, so I think I having that experience at Brancart where I kind of gradually came to be able to say no, like learn, not, I wasn't the one saying no, but like by watching my boss say no for the very important purpose of like financial survival, you know, I'm glad I had that experience because, you know, I've gotten 
maybe 1,400 letters from prisoners since we started. Whoa, and wow. we've said no to, you know, 98% of them. And some of them, like, they're not even bad cases. They're just not the kinds of cases we're looking for or they're in a jurisdiction that's too far away. Or, you know, the ones you really feel bad about are the really horrific medical cases where you're like, this is totally legitimate, but I cannot afford to spend, you know, the money on experts and the time to myself become an expert on this issue that you really need. And, you know, you, you, you I, I don't know, it's a cliche, but I think they say that you make your money on the cases you say no to. And I think if I didn't have, and yeah, I think that's the hardest part. And I didn't, if I didn't have kind of the experience of watching my old boss go through that, I probably, I mean, I said yes to, as I was starting a lot of cases, I shouldn't have said yes to, but I would have been a hundred times worse if I hadn't kind of realized that. I'd be like, it's my firm. I'll just, we'll do it pro bono. I'm like, you know, because yeah. literally with very quickly, you can realize, oh, holy shit, I spent, you know, two weeks on something that's not going to make any money. Um, yeah, I have a hard time saying no, and I'm in a practice that where we don't make money on the cases, so <laughs> I can only imagine if, if that were the case. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it's hard to say no, but as you said, you know, there's there's other drivers that that are there as well. So I we talked a little bit about you know the parts of the the firm that you really like. Um, you just obviously touched on some of the things that are difficult, but I'm wondering, just going back to when you were very first starting and making the jump to say, okay, I'm going to open my own shop. Was there anything that scared you or made you really nervous? Oh my God. Yeah. Um, you know, there's no, there's no net. Like if I screw something up, it's screwed up and there's like, there's <laughs> nobody else to blame. Like now I have Allison. And so theoretically I can blame Allison. Um, <laughs> Not me. You not can not me. podcast you can, you can Allison. Blame your, one one, <laughs> your one, one L in her name, Allison. Uh, partner, partner Allison. Um, but I, mean, I can't even blame her because I think you know she's been with me only for a short time and is you know not not yet making the decisions that we're super worried about. You know? um, but yeah, that's that's really scary. I think mm -hmm. that to get through that. Um, I think it helps to have been doing this a while and you realize that there aren't many things you can screw up so bad you can't fix. Yeah. And then, you know, and the other part of it is, and I, I think this is just easier for a lot of my cases, like, you know, if I was doing, you know, big truck accident wrongful death cases where it's like one of the most competitive markets for plaintiff's lawyers in the country, like there are so many truly amazing, you know, won 40 of their last 40 jury trials type lawyers out there who do those cases and i did something and screwed it up man would i feel terrible but for virtually all of my cases especially the prisoner cases ain't nobody want to help these guys but me, you know yeah. and you know maybe that shouldn't make me feel a little bit better about it but it, it certainly makes me feel a little bit more comfortable with them having you know, little old me as opposed to like, you know, some of these rock stars like that guy in Atlanta. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just, it's scary when you're the only, you know, you're the only say. Yeah, yeah for sure. when you, when I started talking to you about 
opening my own firm, I, I remember vividly you're asking me, well, what are you scared of? <laughs> and it was that I would be the only one. It doesn't necessarily mean there's no one to ask questions to or no one to rely on for advice um, or just have a chat with someone about a plan that you're thinking about or a problem you're trying to solve. But the, the buck really does stop with you. And I think in my situation, having worked at a large firm for our, all of my career, that was never the case. And so transitioning from one extreme to the other was and, and certainly still is the scariest thing for me about working by myself. Yeah, no, I mean, I think, you know, you just, just got to do a good job. And I think the hard part is when you get so busy that you start to not have the time to really think about things the way you should. Mm -hmm. I know we've, you know, not taking, not taking many new cases right now and trying to, you know, slow it down a little bit because we've kind of reached the point where it's like, well, you know, here's some things we should be doing. We're not getting this stuff done in time. You know, you just have to try to be responsible. But no, it's, I think that's definitely the scariest part. And then the next scariest part is just running down and crashing and burning. <laughs> yeah, because you are, you are, as you said, you know, making, making money by how many cases and the types of cases you're doing. Okay, I have one more question about, about the firm, which is that um, I said to Hallie on our first episode, like, you know, essentially you're going to be all by yourself and I would think that was horrible. So, you know, I know that you had a, another job that we didn't talk as much about where you had told us previously that you were like pretty lonely because you were really the only person in the office. And it sounds like now you do have a couple of other partners that you're, you know, bouncing ideas off of and things. But in the beginning, did you find it to be lonely at all or you were just you know so enmeshed and kind of getting it up and running that it was exciting and and you didn't find that yeah i think it's it wasn't so bad and it's hard to know whether that was just be, i mean like i started the firm like two weeks before chicago pandemic lockdown and it's hard just hard to it's hard to disaggregate the effect of covid on the last 18 months you know Mm -hmm. And a positive effect of that was, you know, my wife's working from home and my kids are around, and, you know, so like there are other people in my vicinity, whereas that, that job you're talking about, I was literally alone in a room, you know, eight to 10 hours a day. Mm -hmm. um, and then recently, you know, very quickly, I started getting help. Like I heard the first couple of virtual assistants pretty quickly because I knew that I needed to free up my time as quickly as possible. Mm hmm. And, you know, that, so that was a little bit of human interaction. And then I started working with some other lawyers I know on those consumer protection class actions I mentioned. That was a little bit more. And, you know, Allison started, um, I think, in February of this year. And, you know, actually, we only really, we make a point to talk in the, the last couple of weeks we've made a point to actually have our meetings over like lunch in person. Um, oh, good. Which has been really nice. Um, so it's getting better. I mean, you know, it's, it's a little bit lonely, I think, but it, you know, I think just the, the noise emotions of the time we are living in are kind of blocking that out, but we'll see. I think I would prefer not to spend money on a physical office and I would, I like not having a commute, mm -hmm. but 
you know, there may there may come a time when we we want a space just to just to be communal. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, not, right. Not even, certainly we don't need it. Like we haven't had it for the entire life of the firm, and things are going fine. But well, I forgot that you started this firm in March of 2020, like literally right before <laughs> right before COVID. And I think you said like two days before or something. So I just want to say hats off to you. It sounds like it's going really well. I mean, you're obviously up to the to the point where you have to, you know, stop taking cases for a while, which is super impressive. So, um, yeah, it's exciting. No, it's I, I recommend it for everybody. Well, that's a great starting point for one of our last questions, Tom, which is even in our bubble, since we both went to the same law school, I can't really think of a lot of people. I could really only think of one or two who went into solo practice right out of law school. So what would you want law students to know about that journey, about whether that's possible for them early on in their careers? Yeah, I think it, it definitely is. Um, I think it, it definitely is. You know, one actually one of the more successful lawyers I know is a guy by the name of Adam Krause, and him and his buddy, his law school buddy, Rob Kinsman, started their own plaintiff's personal injury practice. Literally, you know, day of graduation, like they did mm-hmm. never never did anything else. And you know, Adam and Rob are now you know, they're, let's say, quite successful. And, you know, they're still doing personal injury and they got into mass torts and Adam is on a bunch of the kind of steering committees of these MDLs. And, you know, they're going to be, they're going to be in the yacht club soon. Um, <laughs> and, and I think, you know, it's just, you gotta, you gotta do it if you want to do it. And I think they knew they wanted to do it. They knew they wanted to take those risks and try their own cases and and they made it work i think you know and and i think also the time they graduated the the market they graduated out of they didn't have other great options so i I would i don't think people should be afraid of it if they know what they want to do i think the trick is knowing what you want to do like at a at a school that offers essentially no you know no practical instruction in a particular practice area. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, there's no there's no PI law class at Northwestern. And there's certainly, you know, there's like a large law firm class in case you're ever the CEO of Kirkland. But there's no like <laughs> how to run a small law firm class. And I think it, it certainly would be, like if you want to be a PI lawyer and start your own PI shop and you can afford to do it, go work at one of the great PI shops in your town you know, you're going to, you're going to make 50 grand a year for the first year or two, but you will learn a ton, whether it's the right way to do it or the wrong way to do it. You will, you will see things that will help you. Um, so I think, you know, if, if you want to, if you want to start up your own thing right away, as long as you got a plan, go for it. Tom, do you think there should be a, how to start your own law firm class? Oh, absolutely. In, in right. law school. Absolutely. Guys. I think you too have a new <laughs> idea for a class. I would, I would love to. I think it'd be fantastic. I think you could have the best guest speakers, and I think people would be shocked because it's like, you know, in terms of life satisfaction and remuneration, like it's just better than big law by a lot. 
like it ain't even close. And I think the more people who are like, oh, these are like the three things I'm worried about, like insurance, banking, trust accounts, ooh, like it's pretty <laughs> damn simple. And if they, people knew that, you know, we might, we might convince a few more of them to start out a little earlier. I feel like when Hallie told me she was starting her own law firm, I literally was like, uh, are you going to move mountains? Like, I, I mean, you guys obviously have both done it and I'm just so impressed, but I really was like, are you sure? Like, <laughs> you know, I, my instinct, like still having been, you know, worked a bunch of different jobs and been in practice for quite a while was just like, I don't know if that, like you can do that yet, but you know, obviously you guys have proved me wrong. Well, I think probably something you'll recognize, Tom, is from our accountant, who I think would really love for attorneys to learn something about running businesses in law school, although it might take some business away from her. But I think, (laughs) I don't know, if that class had been available, I think I I would have taken advantage of it at the time. The people who would do it, who would take that class, I mean, it's... I'm sure there are people who are like, I will take anything but a doctrinal class, so I will take that class. But I, I do think that there are people at every law school, you know, like maybe they have an uncle who's like a solo or, you know, or like, you know, like one of their parents and mm-hmm. they kind of know that it's an option or even just like they see big law and they're like, dear God, anything but this. And, yeah, I think there'd be interest. I, I, I look into that. I look into putting it together. It'd be interesting to see if, the school would, would let us do it because well, they do, they definitely have these classes at other law schools. Yeah. I'll, I'll follow up with you after this podcast. We can put <laughs> together our evil plan for converting everyone to solo practice. Another great Which... idea coming out of podcasts. Oh, here, okay, I'm here to say it first. <laughs> um, okay. A couple other things, Tom, I just wanted to point out one of the things you really talked about early on was that, you know, being your own boss, you have a lot of autonomy and control. And one of our previous guests, Anna Fodor, who I know you know as well, um, we're really building a Northwestern club here, but um, she has done a bunch of research actually about what makes law students the happiest. And one of the things that makes law students the happiest we learned was autonomy. So like when you get to the point in your law school career or your law school education where you can start choosing classes, or you have the opportunity to choose journal or trial team or whatever it is that's going to be your thing outside of just classes. Um, and I just think it's awesome that that seems to translate in a way to legal careers as well, because, you know, a lot of the people we've talked to made very deliberate choices, whether it's, you know, the, the route they wanted to go public interest or it's being your own boss, which, of course, you know, in that sense, you have probably the most autonomy and control, as you said. Um, so I just want to highlight that because I think it translates not only from the law student space, but straight into the legal practice space. And in terms of, you know, how we're going to get to p- lawyers that have happy, fulfilling careers, I think that's one of the one of the drivers is what we're finding. Totally, totally. I think there's a guy who does, I think he's got a TED Talk and I know he's got a book, but it's like a research on satisfaction at work. And I think autonomy is, he has like three things. And I think autonomy is one of them. And it makes so much sense. Like I was on, I got, I was, I got to tell you guys this because this was so funny. I was on Twitter, I think last night and the thread wasn't, the thread involved like a lawyer drafting an email for a senior lawyer, but that's not what it was about. And then all of the replies 
eyes were like, what the hell are you talking about drafting an email for another person? <laughs> like all the, all the non-lawyers on Twitter were like, that's a thing? Draft <laughs> oh. emails for each other? And I was like, I mean, talk about the antithesis of autonomy. Okay, Tom, so I want to end on what's become my favorite question, um, which is very simple, but just what does success mean to you? I think I'd, I'd like to have, you know, the, the goal for the firm is I would like to not worry about money. And these are not in kind of rank order of importance, but I would like to not worry about money. I think I've, I've had, you know, certainly no more or less than a lot of people, but it's been pretty constant source of stress for my But like I get to a point where I don't have to worry about it anymore. I think that's that's doable. Um, I would like to not, well, let me define it this way. So I think it's a very like middle-class American thing to assume your life will be like, I'm gonna work for 40 years and then I'll, then I'll retire and then I'll enjoy my life. And I do not wanna do that. I want to very deliberately not do that. So I want to have a practice that allows me to not do that. You know, and I, I want to have like other things and non-work things in, in my life uh, that I enjoy. And I want, you know, for the people that come and work at the firm full time, I want all of that stuff for them as well. Like, I think one of the criticisms I have of a lot of plaintiff's firms, and, I, you know, I think this is, they come by it honestly, is you have a very you know, inequitable monetary structure where, and this isn't true of all of them, but it's definitely true of some, you know, where the two or three people who own the firm or the one person who owns the firm is making, you know, eight figures a year and the junior attorneys are making 60 grand. And, you know, the market, the market will allow that, you know, you're, you're going to find law school graduates willing to put in 60 hour weeks for 50, 60 grand a year in a bonus. Um, but I would prefer not to do that. Uh, and, you know, I think if we, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't have a lot of hope that like suing prisons is going to make prisons better over time or suing the police is going to make the police better. But if we can put a few of the bad ones kind of out of business or out of the, their professions, I think that's kind of a noble thing. You know, and, and, and part of what I like about what we do is you, you, you get to take people who have never felt that their issues are taken seriously by the system, and you get the system to take their issues seriously and get them to see them. Well, Tom, it is always such a pleasure to talk to you um, and get your insight about small firm life and otherwise. and. Of course, we wish you continued success at your firm. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing your story with us and, and with our listeners. It's been a lot of fun. No, thank, thank you guys. I'm so stoked that you're doing this. And I will, you know, I will be, uh, I'll be jealous if I'm not your, your first repeat guest in a, in a year or two. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> don't worry. As long, as long as you, you know, retweet us maybe a couple times and we can get some support for a season two. Deal. We'll, we'll definitely have you back. It can be our 
small firm report, small firm yeah. success report for season two. Yeah, hopefully it's a success report and not a less, lessons learned. It will be, Tom. <laughs> it will be. We have to end on a good note here. Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Don't go away. There's more to come in the due diligence portion of our show. Welcome back, everyone. We are here for the due diligence portion of our show. And Hallie, I think the thing that I wanted to just touch on with Tom's episode is that, you know, we know him from law school and he was always very, very smart. Um, yes. You know, he was a TA for a lot of classes and... If you look at his resume, you know, he has sort of all of the blockbuster things on it, right? He did two federal clerkships at the district court level and at the circuit court level. Mm -hmm. He worked at a large law firm in Chicago. Mm -hmm. But I think that what was really nice about this episode is just learning so much more about all of the other things that Tom did, Mm -hmm. like working, you know, at a plaintiff's side firm for a while trying out civil rights litigation while his friend was on maternity leave mm-hmm. at, you know, a, a civil rights boutique in Chicago. Um, and just hearing about sort of the windy road, actually, that he took yeah. to get himself to the place he is now running his own firm. And he picked up so many interesting skills along the way and sort of took pieces from different practices to be able to make his own practice. And so I just think it's really um, awesome that he did that because we've been talking a lot on on the podcast just about trying things out in law school to kind of figure out where you want to go, yeah. but also trying things out after the fact, right? We've talked about how you don't need to be in the same career for 40 years, as it turns <laughs> out. And, you know, you can switch around, what he, which he has done so, so successfully and really got him to a place where he feels like he's really fulfilled. And, you know, again, tying it back to our episode with Anna Fodor, you know, Mm -hmm. she talked about autonomy and control being some of the things that make people the happiest. And he has like been, you know, able to achieve that in his own small firm. So I just really appreciated learning a little bit more about his path Mm -hmm. and how it wasn't this, this linear path, but he was able to, to learn a lot from each of his jobs. And that's what led him to his fulfillment today in his own firm. Yeah. And I think a little bit of it goes contrary to what we consider to be the common advice of, you know, you shouldn't switch jobs all the time or you Mm -hmm. shouldn't try out a bunch of different things after law school and I think that's actually terrible advice um, (laughs) because I think the stakes are a little bit lower than maybe you feel that they are when you're doing that it's okay to try different things out and I thought that was helpful to hear from Tom's perspective too and like you said kind of collecting this information and figuring out what works for you and what doesn't in these different types of workplaces. And of course that ties into the, to the solo practice. And of course was something I really enjoyed about Mm -hmm. talking to Tom. Um, And now that we are well into our season one, um, nearing the end of our season one, actually it's, I know so hard to believe Um, we can make a lot of connections between episodes and in this one, In particular, I was thinking back to our first episode where we talked about how, you know, it can be 
certainly scary, also potentially lonely um, to work for yourself, by yourself. But Tom's episode was a great reminder um, for me and for our listeners how important it is to build those connections and find people who you can go to when you have questions. I mean, I've asked Tom (laughs) some of the silliest questions about (laughs) starting my own firm, and he's been so generous with me to share resources and things that worked for him and things that didn't work for him. And I've, we have very different practices. I mean, I practice estate planning and he practices civil rights litigation, but there it's been really helpful to have a starting point, someone that I trust that I can go to and ask those questions who has been really candid with me and helpful in evaluating my options. So I think that connects back not only to our first episode, but also now nearly almost every episode when we talk about the relationships and connections that have helped people get where they are um, and be able to make better informed decisions as they're you know evaluating and, and making career choices. So it was really fun to have Tom on and um, reflect back on that, how helpful he's been. I also will just add that Tom made such a plug for podcasts and yes. how much you can learn from podcasts. I love that you all got your accountant um, from a podcast. There, he, yes. he found it on a podcast, and then you, like you said, got advice from him. So it just yes. goes to show podcasts are great sources of information. Yeah, much like this one. I'm <laughs> exactly. sure. Hopefully, this will be episode ten. So. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope our listeners have learned something from personal jurisdiction. I mean, we've learned a ton, so <laughs> it's been a really totally. fun experience yes, for us. It's been fun for us, for sure. All right. Well, thanks for joining us for our episode with Tom Case. We'll be taking a break for the week of Thanksgiving, but we will be back after that with two more episodes to round out our season one. So we hope you'll keep listening and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Personal Jurisdiction is powered and distributed by Simplecast. You don't have to wait until next week to hear more. You can find us online at personaljxpod.com and on Twitter at personaljxpod. Don't forget to subscribe to Personal Jurisdiction on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you like to listen so that you can be updated on the latest and greatest from Personal Jurisdiction. If you like what you hear, make sure to rate us five stars and leave a positive review so that other listeners can find our show too.